Certain information set forth in this podcast may contain forward-looking information under applicable securities laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. Solberry Trout and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in this podcast if circumstances or management's estimates or opinions should change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell securities and does not constitute an investment advice. My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific advisor to Solberry Trout, and this is the latest edition of Name Tag a podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Jonathan Drackman. He is the CEO and founder, co-founder of Neolucan Therapeutics. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. First things first, uh, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Neolucan, let's start with the elevator pitch. So 60 seconds or less, when was Neolucan founded? Where are you headquartered? And give me an idea of what kind of science you do there. Great, thanks. Neolucan Therapeutics was founded at the end of 2018 in Seattle, where we remain. And we're focused on using computational algorithms to design completely de novo proteins. So not based on the sequences that exist in nature, but really structured to make proteins that have the ideal function. And we're focused initially on making cytokine memetics. So new proteins that will either activate the immune cells to fight cancer or inhibit immune cells to treat autoimmune disease. Okay, good. Um, now, before we get started, I just, I just need to tell listeners a little story because this is a sort of unusual of how I know the person I'm speaking with. So I was at ASCO two years ago and I'm going to various immunotherapy sessions because that's what I do. And I get a call in the middle of the session from my boss, uh, Jonathan Fassberg, and he says, uh, hey, uh, can you meet me in front of the McCormick in 10 minutes? I want to see what you think of this guy. And I'll leave the session and I meet the guy. And that guy, Jonathan, is you. So, so I get there, we get an outside table, round of drinks, and you start telling me about this idea, this de novo protein building platform thingy. It's going to be a new company. I don't even remember if you had a name then, but as you continue to talk, this story became like increasingly familiar to me. And, and then it hit me. This is the technology of Rosetta, Rosetta at home. Now, this was a crowdsourced protein folding project out of the David Baker lab at University of Washington. And the idea was that anybody who hasn't heard of it, this is how it works. So uh, because you need such an enormous computing power to predict protein folding, and at the time, no computer could do that. Rosetta at Home would let you network your computer to theirs whenever you weren't using it. So all you needed was a computer and a modem and you can join it, join up, and so I did. But this was 20 years ago. And now at ASCO, 2019 is the translation of all that work sitting right in front of And as soon as the meeting broke, I told Jonathan, my boss, I said, listen, we need to do whatever we have to do to sign this client. So here we are, Jonathan, this is gonna be some fun. Obviously, I'm familiar with the science and the Lucan. Uh, I don't now actually know that much about you. So let's start with a couple of basics. You trained at Harvard, MD. So you're a smart guy, check. Then a residency in internal medicine, University of Washington, Seattle. 
and then a fellowship in oncology also at the University of Washington. Um, what were the years of that? I was a, a resident and a, and a fellow from um, 1989 through the mid 90s. And that included both my hematology uh, oncology fellowship as well as being chief resident at the University of Washington. Okay. So roughly at the end of that time was when I first attended ASH. And hematology at that time was really dismal. Uh, the drugs were crappy, everyone died. No one knew mechanisms for anything. This was a very difficult career choice. Why did you go in this direction? I was always interested in being in oncology because I felt that the science was evolving so rapidly that there would be really significant changes in my during the, the time of my career. And uh, it actually was, was true. You, you may think of that as a dismal time, but it was really the start of antibody therapy. It's when rituxan became approved in 98. And uh, suddenly there were, there were now therapies for these um, diseases that, that otherwise people only had chemotherapy. There was also uh, the breakthrough of BCR ABLE inhibitors. I remember um, hearing the uh, presentation of the very first patients that had been, been treated down at OHSU. Um, and it, it, was, it was actually an incredibly exciting time. And um, my, my research at the time was in um, molecular biology and uh, cell signaling. I worked in Ken Kashansky's lab uh, where thrombopoietin was cloned and um, discovered. And I really got very excited about all that the, um, the, the technology was enabling people to do. Especially in therapeutics, you were in sort of the ground level there of understanding how these things were gonna work and how they could be used. Yeah, that, that, it was really exciting. I think um, when, uh, when I made the transition to industry, I, I felt like uh, having both that, that scientific and clinical background was really, was really helpful. Uh, how long were you at the, uh, the bedside? Well, I was uh, on faculty um, for, uh, well, at, pretty much from my residency through the end of 2004. I was, uh, I was full-time in, in academics, and that involved teaching. It involved uh, taking care of patients and research. So I, I had a full-time research lab um, at at the University of Washington, and I was physically located at what at that time was called the Puget Sound Blood Center. Um, and I attended on the wards and had a clinic and, uh, and, and taught residents and fellows. It was really exciting time. I, I loved it. Oh. I, also did, I also did continue to have a clinic. Um, it wasn't an extraordinarily busy time, but I did continue to take care of patients for the first four or five years that I was in industry. So you mentioned industry, we're talking about Seattle Genetics, which you joined in 2004. Uh, I, this is always curious to me when a physician leaves to go into industry, because it's obviously a very different thing. Why did you go? What was the decision? Well, it was a part of a, of a long period of thinking about how I wanted my career to evolve. And um, I loved the ability of making a significant difference for patients. 
and felt that the the opportunity of working with a whole team of people that were dedicated to that would um, be even better than working as an individual in industry and, and constantly fighting for resources and grants and that sort of thing. And I, I would say that was the biggest change in going from academics to industry is really feel like you're going from an individual sport to a team sport. Okay, so you're there, 2004, uh, you rose up the ladder, you, be, uh, you were the senior VP of research, the, the CMO, and then finally the senior advisor uh, for innovation. Now, I've, I've followed Seattle Genetics over the years, and in that span, uh, there's some significant ups and downs to, to be considered. Uh, the Acetris approval was no small thing. You were there for that. Um, could you give me just a little flavor of what it's like to be in a company like Seattle Genetics? I mean, ADCs were not a big thing, and then some things hit. Yeah, I mean, if you think back to 2004, you know, first of all, Seattle Genetics was a small company, about 130 people when I joined. Um, there, uh, et cetera, had not even been invented yet. I think that the first patient was treated in 2006, and there was still a lot of work going on on deciding what that mo that that molecule was going to look like and and what exactly the composition of it would be. Um, what was really exciting was all the different possibilities. There, there were a lot of things that, that we were working on at the time and the data really drove the decision-making, which is what I, what I love to see. So in, in uh, 2006, as I mentioned, the first patients were treated with Etcetris and within a year, we were seeing some pretty remarkable activity and um, were able to uh, navigate a, a fast route to approval. I, I was not leading the Etcetris program at the time, but uh, by 2011, it was approved. So within five years of the first patient being treated. Okay, okay. Now that was obviously, uh, this was a platform of ADCs. There's a new number of other assets, some uh, not as successful as that. Could you give me an example of an asset where you had to pivot in the development program that, that you just hit a hitch and you know we have to figure out something different here. Sure, I mean, there's, there's so many of those things that, that happen. Um, almost every drug that goes into patients looks good preclinically and can, you cure a lot of mice um, in, in the, the preclinical development. But when you get into patients, it's, uh, there, there's definitely a lot of a lot of changes, and and um, you often are in the position of having to um, figure out how to understand new toxicities and how you would work around those in order to be able to deliver a drug safely and effectively. And there were lots of examples of that. The the first program that I was ever involved in was a CD40 agonist, where Early on, we saw significant uh, cytokine release syndrome and cytokine storm, and, and we had to go through an entire process of figuring out how to give it and to get to the, the active doses. And that was a, a really uh, interesting program. It, um, it had some great responses in patients. It ultimately did not end up getting, um, getting approved. But I feel that every time you go through um, those those kinds of experiences, you learn a tremendous amount. And um, 
there, there are all these examples that I can look back on. Sometimes the things that are the most challenging are the most instructive and, and help you to understand um, what, it, what you need to do going forward. Do you think those experiences made you better at walking, knowing when to walk away? Um, that's always a really hard thing to do. I think from, from a, um, there's, there's the, the, uh, the sunk cost bias. Once you've, you've invested a certain amount of, of time and effort and money into a program, it's hard to, um, then, uh, say you're done with that and, and give up on that. And, but I think it is really helpful to have perspective and to seek, other opinions as well, because sometimes the person who's closest to it has the hardest time uh, seeing that. That actually leads me right in my next question, which is other opinions, be they welcome or not. Um, Seattle Genetics worked with a lot of partners in, in these various assets. Uh, Stellis was there, Genentech, Takeda. Um, give me uh, an example of how is working with a partner different than going on your own? Well, the challenge with um, with partnerships is often that you have uh, uh, different teams that have different management and different um, both you know priorities as well as even cultures. And um, trying to to form a cohesive team where you you mesh those people and you're really working more towards the common uh, goal of getting a, a drug approved can um, can be the challenge. The, the benefit is obviously that you have additional resources, particularly when you are a smaller company, the, the costs become almost prohibitive as you, as you move past early clinical development into late stage trials. And you know, if you just look at the, the, um, the very aggressive program that Etcetris was able to, to move forward to get multiple uh, frontline um, indications and do really big uh, studies to improve, for example, frontline Hodgkin lymphoma therapy. Those would have been very difficult to do without a partner. And, you know, Takeda was a great partner for us working on that. And then um, Astellas, I obviously worked with a lot on uh, the development of Enfortimabvidotin, which is now approved as, as PADSEV for urothelial carcinoma. And uh, yeah, it's really um, it's important to do, and it's important to learn how how to uh, to work in a collaboration like that. So, with those lessons and innumerable others over 14 years of Seattle Genetics, you decided to leave in 2019. Now, I, I have to assume this was a fairly comfortable existence by then, and but you left to go to Neil Lucan. Why this new challenge in this small company? Well, I. I love um, being at, at uh, the forefront of innovation and doing new things and learning new things and, and new challenges. And I absolutely loved my time at Seattle Genetics, now CGen. Uh, wouldn't have, have traded that for anything. I, I learned an incredible amount. I got to work with terrific colleagues and work on great drugs. Um, there, uh, I think that as as the focus switched more to uh, phase three trials and um, uh, more of the um, 
overall commercial focus of the company, um, I was I started thinking about what other new things I could work on, and um, those were kind of independent decisions. You know, I, I was thinking about that, and then um, later on, I met the scientists that did the uh, foundational work uh, that that is part of Neoleukin Therapeutics. Okay. So you're, you uh, became CEO and co-founder. You thankfully signed with the Trout Group. Thank you for that. Uh, and one of the first big decisions that you made has to do with a company called Aquinas. And I was in the boardroom when this was being discussed. And since I have zero background in finance, I understood very little of what we were doing. So could you, uh, for our listeners, just walk through uh, what that was, decision was about? Okay, let, let me actually step back a little bit to yep. the, the founding of the company. So I remember it was um, or, or in the summer of, of uh, 2018, I um, stopped by to talk to, to David Baker. And you mentioned David Baker before, you know, uh, Rosetta, uh, the game Folded, and a whole bunch of things were developed in him. In his lab, David has been, he's a Howard Hughes investigator. He founded the Institute for Protein Design and has been working on how proteins fold for, for three decades. But my relationship with David goes back to college. We went to college together at Harvard. Oh, and so um, he and I have, have been friends and I've you know, known him throughout my time at the University of Washington and in Seattle. So um, it was, uh, I was just having a, a conversation with him to hear how things were going with him. And he said, oh, you should meet these scientists. And he brought these, uh, these four incredible scientists into the room um, who, are the, who are my uh, co-founders, um, uh, Daniel, Uma, Carl, and Alfredo. And as I started talking to them and they, they gave me this uh, quick pitch about what they were doing, I, it immediately clicked with me how exciting this was, how they have completely reinvented cytokines and the ability to make um, an IL-2-like molecule that has the benefits without the negatives and uh, even ways to imagine making conditional activation using de novo protein design. So it was a really exciting day. And um, I, I left that, that meeting thinking, wow, this would be an exciting thing to work on. So that was really the start of it. We incorporated um, at the end of 2018. And then for the first um, six, seven months, we really focused on, we raised a seed round um, and we're really focused on operations and trying to get uh, our, our lead molecule defined, manufactured, and uh, see if we could, we could get it ready for an IND. And um, in the course of talking to a lot of different investors, it was suggested maybe we should consider a merger with a, with a public company. Um, and that wasn't something we were thinking about. We were thinking about potentially doing a, uh, a licensing deal um, or raising a traditional Series A round with, with venture capitalists. Um, but there, was, there were a number of things about the opportunity with Aquinox, Pharmace Aquinox Therapeutics, the company we ended up merging with, that made it really attractive. Uh, first of all, they had had a, a phase three failure uh, about a year earlier, and they had been in the process of looking for another um, technology to merge with. And they had a very clean balance sheet. They had uh, a significant amount of capital 
available. So after the merger, uh, $65 million. And um, they had a, a, a great um, investment group um, that, that was backing them. I mean, it was, uh, so between all those things, that became an attractive option for us. And it also gave us access to the public markets, which has both pluses and, and minuses for such an early company because we were still two years away from, um, from being in clinic. And you know the, the, um, obviously that's a long time to keep investors uh, interested in your story, but it's also access to the public markets. So what was striking to me about this story is that you spent your entire career on the science side of things. And now you're dealing with a fairly sophisticated financial move and you're dealing with investors, which I'm assuming that was a, the first time you were doing that. Uh, did you feel like a, a little out of your depth? I mean, I mean, it's quite a learning curve. Yeah, it, it is. Um... I, I did get a lot of opportunity at Seattle Genetics to interact with investors and uh, analysts um, and even bankers. So, you know, I, I oh, okay. really give a lot of um, credit to the the people at, at Seattle Genetics and especially uh, Clay Seagal, who, who gave me those opportunities. Um, I also had great people to work with. And, you know, I think one of the key things is always find people who, who can help you, who are really talented, who are really smart. Um, Cam Allum, who was our uh, interim CFO, came to us from Equinox and stayed uh, with the company for, uh, for almost a year. And he has been, he was just tremendously helpful at making the relationships with the bankers, um, helping me to navigate uh, all of the, the, um, the IR uh, work. And, you know, it was even the people at, at Aquinox that put us in, in touch with, with Trout, David Main yeah. and, and Cam. And then um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to find our new uh, CFO, Bob Ho, who joined us in March of this year and has just, you know, not, not missed a step. He came right in. He, he built a a finance team um, that in Seattle. So we, we did have a lot of the um, finance up in Vancouver with, with Equinox for an, until then. And now we've built this great, great finance team. Um, so I think it's really about building a terrific team and people you want to work with. So I would say that the, the you know, I, I kind of uh, joke that, that as a CEO, I've got, I've got three important jobs. Don't run out of money don't run out of space and hire smart people. And if you do those three things, I think, you know, the rest of it will, will largely take care of itself. Excellent. All right, now let's get a little, move a little closer to the, uh, to the company at hand and your various assets and the platform. Now I want to start off with a little secondhand skepticism. The first time I spoke to an investor about the Neolithic platform, uh, this was at Fitzy, and this was someone with a, a background in protein design. They had done a postdoc. And uh, in his opinion, predicting protein folding was still pretty much a crapshoot. And this was sort of why I had heard of about ADC companies in that if you design one ADC, this does not necessarily inform you about the design of the next ADC. So if you could explain to me or explain to the investor who may well be on this call, 
why is this really a platform? Yeah, well, I the skepticism is is appropriate because it's never been done before. And when the paper um, describing our first molecule came out in Nature in January 2019, it it did make uh, a, a fair amount of of news because it it was such a, a new thing, and nobody has done this kind of backwards engineering of saying this is the shape I want. Now, what sequence will will fold to give me exactly this, this structure and therefore function. So um, that really uh, is, is a tribute to um, the scientists at uh, the Institute for Protein Design and largely Daniel Silva, who was the, the person who wrote the initial algorithms for doing this. And it's, um, it's not like you can just, uh, plug in some coordinates and it'll spit out a sequence. It does take a lot of input and know-how from the operator of these algorithms to optimize for certain properties, whether it's hydrophilicity or um, how short, how small and compact it is, uh, what, how tightly held together the, um, the center, central core is of that molecule. And um, you're actually able to design these molecules that have uh, properties that wouldn't exist in nature. So super stable molecules that, that you can heat up and even boil and they retain their activity. Um, you can make molecules that could be resistant to different pHs or, uh, or even proteolytic environments. So it really just gives you an opportunity to create things that are, that are very robust and powerful. Um, the uh, ability to do it more than once is something that, you know, definitely it, 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 I, I can understand the skepticism. I would say that the majority of the, the, uh, the molecules that were developed to activate IL-2 and IL-15 worked. So it wasn't that there was one specific sequence. There were a lot of sequences that could um, form functional proteins. And I think that that um, is, is a tribute to the fact that you can, um, there's more than, than one way to create a certain structure. And then the, uh, the last thing, which I think we'll talk about a little later is the, uh, the, the side trip we took into the COVID-19 world where in less than three months, we were able to design a, uh, a de novo decoy molecule. Yeah, I'm gonna come back to that in just a minute, but it does tie into something I would like to mention to the listener now is you don't have to take Jonathan's word entirely for the potential of this platform. Uh, there's also been some very significant press of late. Uh, David Baker was featured in the New Yorker in September. Uh, Neil Lucan itself was featured in Forbes in mid-November and that had to do with the COVID asset that you just mentioned. And again, in the New York Times, just I think uh, a week and a half ago. So let's go ahead and specifically to the asset. And, and those uh, articles, I, I should just say, yeah. were based on a manuscript that was published in Science, where um, the first author was Tom Linsky, last author, Daniel Silva, um, describing that work. Excellent. So let's talk about the asset, uh, the lead asset, NL201. This construct uh, targets IL-2 and IL-15, as you previously uh, mentioned. A lot of companies have try to hit the IL-2 sweet spot, and most of these efforts have failed or been suboptimal. 
Um, walk me through how this one is going to work. Well, first of all, there, there is a lot of excitement around IL-2, largely because IL-2 itself is an active drug. It has durable remissions in 5 to 8% of patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma and melanoma. And many of those patients um, who were originally treated in the 90s are still alive today because of IL-2. So there's, there's right. this desire from oncologists to have that kind of activity but something maybe that works in a higher percentage of people or is better tolerated. And because we know what's wrong with IL-2, the fact that it preferentially binds to cells that express the alpha subunit or CD25 is really, it's really a problem of biodistribution and where the greatest activity is. Um, so uh, just to... Um, focus on that for a minute. CD25 is uh, a non-signaling subunit, but it, it does bind to IL-2 very strongly and it changes the conformation so that it becomes a high affinity binder for beta and gamma. Um, and those are the signaling subunits. And, and um, so we knew that if we could make a molecule that was a high affinity binder and activator of beta and gamma, and had no interaction with alpha whatsoever, we would be able to get something that had most of the good properties of IL-2 without that preference for binding to the T regulatory cells, the endothelial cells, the eosinophils, which can contribute to toxicity and immunosuppression. Um, and you know, I, I'd say that almost everyone else that's out there uh, has done it the other way, they've started with IL-2 and they've said, how can we change this molecule so that it doesn't bind as tightly to CD25? And um, uh, they have, it's very hard when you do that to increase the stability, to make it bind to beta and gamma more potently rather than less potently when you knock out uh, alpha interaction. So I think we have, a, we have a differentiated molecule in that it's more potent on beta gamma than IL-2. It activates IL, the IL-2 and IL-15 pathways equally because they both share the same beta and gamma chain. And it has no possibility of interacting with the alpha subunit because that portion of the molecule is gone. So for, for those three reasons, we think it could be differentiated and have a wider therapeutic index. And that's really what we're after. I think that a lot of the other molecules that are in clinic, um, it's too early to say how they're going to, to read out, but the, um, the, the bottom line is, is being able to deliver a, an active therapy to patients in a way that's toler tolerated, tolerable. Now, uh, for listeners who want to drill down on the technology, uh, there is a paper that was mentioned earlier. It's in Nature in 2019. It's called De Novo Design of Potent and Selective Mimics of IL-2 and IL-15. Uh, Jonathan, where are we in development on this? Well, um, we are getting close to, to starting to treat patients, which is really exciting. You know, we set out in 2018 to uh, the goal to have a drug that was ready to treat patients by the end of 2020, and we're we're uh, we're still pursuing that. And as um, as of our last presentations, we were on track to submit our IND uh, to the FDA by the end of the year. And we've already submitted our CTN in Australia. 
our regulatory documents there. So um, we're, uh, we're really excited to be making that step from, um, from research and uh, from a research company to a clinical stage company. Can you give me just a flavor of what the phase one might look like or you're not? Sure, yeah. Um, our, our, uh, we're actually planning two trials, um, both of them monotherapy trials in patients with advanced cancer. The, um, the first one is intravenous systemic monotherapy uh, for patients with advanced solid tumors. And we'll be exploring different doses and schedules in order to find the uh, recommended dose and schedule to take forward. And, um, you know, obviously we'll be looking at pharmacokinetics and immunogenicity and um, uh, all, all the pharmacodynamic uh, uh, biomarkers. And then we'll be expanding in indication specific cohorts, uh, including, but not necessarily limited to uh, melanoma and renal cell carcinoma. The other trial that we're planning to start next year, it will be a local administration trial of NL201, where uh, by delivering the drug directly to the tumor microenvironment, um, we believe that we'd be able to get even higher local concentrations without systemic toxicity and test the hypothesis that, um, that, that uh, whether or not that would be advantageous over systemic administration. Um, since you are a physician and knowing what you do about uh, the mechanism here, do you expect a fairly rapid readout once once the patient has been treated? Um, you know, it's always hard to tell with immunotherapy uh, because mm -hmm. this is activating immune cells. I wouldn't be surprised to see something relatively quickly um, if if a patient's going to respond. Um, but but there are definitely stories of people who with immunotherapy respond um, months into their therapy. Right. Right. Um, now let's, let's point in the direction of the versatility of the platform. Uh, you do have other programs. And the first thing that I would mention in, in our IO world is that if a, if a drug ramps up the immune system, that might tell you something about also how to shut it down. Uh, and you have some interests and thoughts about autoimmunity. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I, let me, um, one thing I wanted to say about our, uh, our lead asset before we jump mm -hmm. into that is we've presented a fair amount of data at a couple conferences this year. So at the uh, AACR2 virtual conference and at the SITC oh. virtual conference, we presented some additional data showing um, how uh, both preclinical monotherapy data as well as combination data. One of the nice things about activating both the uh, CD8 T cells and the NK cells is there's so many nice ways where combinations could work, whether it's monoclonal antibodies, checkpoint inhibitors, CAR T cells, NK cells, it, it, there's, there's a lot of uh, potential. We also saw that in 12 out of 12 different syngenetic tumor models, we had statistically significant and in some cases really profound tumor growth delay. So I don't think this is in any way limited to um, renal cell cancer and melanoma. I think there's many different indications for where NL201 could work. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, and now, uh, as far as autoimmune disease goes, with the uh, with the platform, we can design drugs that can be very, very stable. As I mentioned, they could resist uh, acidic environments, proteolytic environments. They can be stable at room temperature, and that gives you the opportunity if you design something that was 
a blocker of immune signaling to deliver it in a, in a localized manner. So you could even give a drug orally to block um, immune, the immune system in the gut, for example, treating inflammatory bowel disease. You could give an inhaled drug to treat asthma or pulmonary fibrosis, and you could even give a topical drug to treat um, uh, eczema or psoriasis. So I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity. <clears throat> we haven't disclosed what our next drug will be and whether it will be in cancer or autoimmune disease, but we will be disclosing that within the next year. So now a very bizarre opportunity has crossed your plate, yours and many others, and it's called COVID. And, and, and you seem to have something to say about that. And that's what the Forbes article was about. And you actually have a candidate that you're looking at already. Tell me, tell well, me about this. Yeah. So back in January, the first uh, patient that was diagnosed in the U.S. was in Seattle, and the, Seattle was a hot spot. And so very early in, uh, in March, we were all working remotely, and we have a lot of computational scientists that were looking for something to do from home with their computers. <laughs> and in February, the structure had just been uh, published of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 bound to the ACE2 uh, receptor on human respiratory epithelium. And so um, the thought was, well, maybe we could design something that would bind tightly to that spike protein on the virus and block its ability to interact with, uh, with human cells. And so it couldn't infect them. And uh, what the, the science article talks about is actually how in um, about 10 weeks, we were able to make a protein that replicated exactly the um, the, the part of ACE2 that interacts with the spike protein, and then to use um, directed evolution to make, that, make an even more potent version of that, and then to make a bivalent form that got down to something that was much more effective even than the native ACE2 protein at competing for the spike protein binding site the receptor binding domain on the virus. And we were able to show in vitro that we could block the infection of uh, human cells, including lung cells at uh, very low micromolar or picomolar concentrations. And that we could even uh, protect um, hamsters from the serious effects of uh, getting a high dose of, of virus. If we were, and, and here we're giving this as an intranasal um, uh, spray or, or um, droplets. So the idea being that if you have something that's really effective at blocking infection and you could deliver it locally, like with an intranasal spray, uh, you could potentially have a prophylactic. What's the next step to this program? That's a great question. I, I think that with the, um, the advancing of the, um, the vaccines, um, it's likely that the prevalence of, of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection is going to drop over the, the, the coming months and year, but it's not clear to me that the disease is fully gonna go away. I think there's an opportunity that the virus could mutate to um, evade some of the viruses and therapeutics that are being developed. And because our molecule exactly replicates the ACE2 binding domain, it really wouldn't be able to mutate in a way that it could avoid our protein and still 
infect human cells. So it could be a way of being prepared for potential resistance down the road. So um, we haven't announced uh, our plans as to you know whether we would develop this ourselves or or license it or or um, or whatever. But I think that it does um, suggest that the, the platform provides lots of opportunities to to work in different areas. It's not just making cytokine activators and inhibitors, but it can work in in many different ways. Excellent. Um, now, I'm, I'm thinking this is a fairly obvious question. All this IP is in-house, these various assets? Well, we, yeah, we in-licensed the original IP uh, from the University of Washington, and um, we have uh, continued to build on that with, um, with new IP. Um, there's also a lot of know-how that, that goes along with uh, a new field like this. Okay. And we're about ready to wrap up. I just need to uh, ask a couple questions about money. Uh, so you did a deal in July, you got uh, 71 million, nice job. Uh, just give me a little color around that deal. Yeah, so um, we were really uh, looking at what the opportunity might be to, um, to continue to develop additional molecules in our platform and also how broadly we could develop NL201, um, assuming that we have good safety and proof of concept. And so we want to make sure that we had an adequate um, cash runway to, to really do this and to, um, to build rapidly. So we've been able to um, rate, we did two follow-on offerings, uh, one in December of, of 2019, and one, as you mentioned, in early July of 2020. And so at the end of the third quarter, we had um, just over $200 million in cash and cash equivalents, and that gives us runway into 2023. So it puts us in a really um, good position. Right now, we can focus on NL201, on our pipeline, and on uh, the science. We're now over 60 employees um, and uh, uh, are really excited about, um, hopefully, uh, COVID permitting, moving into our new facility, our new lab, and, and headquarters next, uh, early next year. Cool. So I know the runway. Um, so you're, you're in this nice space. Uh, we're recording this in preparation for JP Morgan, the virtual JP Morgan. And uh, as you just told me, you, you can have more relaxed conversations because you don't need money right now. So what kind of conversations are you looking to have with JP Morgan? We are always interested in telling the story and um, finding people who are excited about the opportunity, the platform, and the long-term opportunities. I, um, I like to say that overnight success takes 15 years. And um, it, it really is the beginning of the beginning for de novo protein design. When we uh, treat our first patient, we believe this will be the first patient treated with a fully de novo protein um, in, systemically. So uh, we're, we're very excited about learning about this field, staying at the forefront of it, continuing to develop additional molecules and um, looking for uh, investors and people who really believe in that, that long-term approach. All right, well, Jonathan, that's a wrap. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been speaking today with Dr. Jonathan Drachman. He is the co-founder and CEO of Neolucan Therapeutics. 
Jonathan, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Neil, thank you. I really enjoyed it.